I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Thank you so much for joining me. I have waited for this conversation you're about to hear for uh, three months now. Last time we planned it, my wonderful guest actually had COVID and then uh, couldn't show up. And I was crying in the corner for a very long time. The story of how we met was that we both uh, spoke at a conference of a financial institute that was asking the question, What will the world be like in 550 and 500 years? And it was me, Clover Hogan, and a, let's say, extremely prominent uh, sir, the best in his field here in the United Kingdom. And uh, as you can imagine, and I apologize to big personalities, we had opinions and we disagreed on stage and we were chatting and discussing and until uh, the moderator said, so Clover, what do you think? And oh my God, I was flattened, floored. I was like, literally, I just could not believe what I heard. This 23-year-old activist just so eloquently summarized her point of view in a way where I, I I have never heard anyone say it so to the point in such a short time. And then, like wise people do, she stopped. She said her point in like three minutes and then boom, that's it. And so in that moment of silence, when I'm completely stunned, the moderator asks me something and I actually couldn't even pull my head together. I was still thinking about what Clover said. And I said, well, before you talk to me, Clover for prime minister, because I honestly and truly believe everything that we've messed up, people like Clover in our next generation, hopefully will fix it. Clover Hogan is Australian, so she loves coffee like I do. She actually just said that the coffee I made her was good enough. Hey, (laughs) by the way, by the way, uh, she's a climate activist. She's a researcher on the topic of eco-anxiety, basically how the current crisis with our climate change is affecting our mental health. She's the CEO and founder of uh, Force of Nature, which is a youth nonprofit mobilizing the mindsets, basically trying to change the mindset to encourage action for climate change. She, at the wonderful age of 23, has been an activist for 10 years, for 11 years already. She has worked with uh, the world leading authorities, uh, consulting for board of directors of uh, Fortune 500 companies. She's worked with major government leaders, uh, CEOs and others. And she interviewed the wonderful, wonderful His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And, Yeah, incredibly far-reaching with a very clear message. I think you will enjoy this very much, Clover Hogan. Thank you for having me. I'm feeling very shy after that introduction. (laughs) Oh, that's not you. (laughs) 
I have to start with the obvious. How do you start being an activist when you haven't even finished school? <laughs> <laughs> Very cool parents. No, oh, I, okay. Did you guys hear that? We're going to record this and send it to her parents. <laughs> I'll just send them that snippet and nothing else. <laughs> So I was very lucky to be born in a beautiful part of Australia called the Whitsundays. Uh, it's, you know, you see the Google images of the white sand beaches, the aqua water. And, you know, my parents had worked in advertising for 30 years in the big city and the big smoke in Sydney. And so really wanted me to have this, you know, upbringing in nature. And so I remember spending more time outside than in. I used to fish frogs out of the toilet and dodge <laughs> snakes that hung from the ceiling and avoid doing my homework so that I could go and explore the mudflats outside our house and rescue mm. beach sea turtles. So I developed this really deep relationship to the nature all around me from a very early age. However, when I was 11, I discovered documentaries and I remember watching films like The Cove and Inconvenient Truth, yeah. Food Inc. And I remember just feeling heartbreak, you know, yeah. I, I remember sitting glued to my computer screen, just sobbing as I watched, you know, these images of million year old forests being bulldozed to make Big Macs and, you know, the coral reef that I'd grown up on turning white and acidified because of climate change, seeing these dolphin hunts that turned the shoreline red. And I think that the image that sticks most with me to this day is this graph that was presented by Al Gore that showed yeah. how, you know, quickly we were kind of destroying the planet and critically how good we were at pretending otherwise. And so I remember amidst that heartbreak, also remembering the people within those films who committed their lives to trying to solve these issues. And I remember, you know, stopping my parents at the dinner table one night and saying, I want to be one of those people, you know, I want to commit my life to this thing. So I made that declaration and that is, yeah, really where it all started. So I, I remember the inconvenient truth. Actually, my mom we had a very, very strange climate in summer this year, everywhere in the world, really. And I was in the United Kingdom at the time in uh, August, where it was really a drought, basically. I, I was staying on my retreat away in the countryside. And it really reminded me almost of Dubai, in a way. All of the grass was completely dead. Most of the bushes were dying and the trees were really, really suffering. And I called my mom, I call my mom as frequently as I can. And she basically said, Al Gore was right. We did not believe at the time that he was so right, but it is an inconvenient, I think now it's a painful truth. Yeah. And I mean, even now, even with 33 million people being displaced in Pakistan by the floods, yes. you know, even with Europe, you know, experiencing its worst drought in over 500 years, we're still so deeply entrenched in denial. And I remember during that heat wave, um, you know, feeling this incredible anxiety and kind of despair, <laughs> you know, not just because of the heat wave itself, but because of the lack of reporting in the media. Yeah. And, you know, I went onto the BBC and they had this coverage of hottest ever temperatures. And, you know, there's one news reporter eating an ice cream as he's sharing the story. There's another one who sat in an inflatable pool talking about, you know, this is great weather to get out and sunbathe. And in none of those videos, I remember clicking through trying to find mention of climate change and there was nothing. It was just 
like, you know, this is beach weather, you know, get out and make the most of it. And I was like, how can we be witnessing climate collapse and witnessing a climate emergency like parts of the UK literally on fire right now and be talking about swimming at the beach and ice creams so I wrote about it and I wrote about this frustration and people got so irritated alongside me that it caught the attention of the BBC and then they actually rewrote all of those articles and they put out a press release on you know this direct relationship with the climate crisis the fact that you know climate change made the heat wave 10 times more likely it likely increased the heat by a conservative estimate of four degrees so suddenly they were actually reporting on the science four degrees yeah and that's conservative so conservatively at least four degrees and I, i just need to put this in perspective most people don't understand but four degrees is it yeah like if the entire globe goes up four degrees we're toast we're completely submerged yeah exactly and mm-hmm. and climate change is not felt equally as we know so yeah. there are already parts of the world you know the arctic for example that are you know, warming so rapidly. It's part of what made the floods in Pakistan so bad is all of their glaciers are melting. In places like the UK, we're in a bubble of relative privilege. We don't experience it to that same extent, but we are starting to experience it. And fortunately, people are waking up to it, but that's often not helped by media that is still just pretending that, you know, everything is fine. But everything is not fine. No, (laughs) no. Tell me what your perspective is. Where are we on this? You know, I think... Every year of my life, we've started to see climate change taking front and center stage more, right? It's been incremental, but in the past couple of years, we have started to see this shift. And yet last year in 2021, globally, fossil fuel subsidies doubled. The UK, Liz Truss, our new prime minister, is proposing over 100 new contracts for drilling in the North Sea, where we've never had better access to the science. You know, you know this coming from Google, any of us can find the facts online, but we're still, it's not just delay, it's outright denial. It's pretending that this problem isn't going to affect us, pretending that, you know, it's not happening and we're seeing the the impacts of it directly. And I think it's, it's incredibly frustrating. And a lot of the work that we do at Force of Nature is really understanding, you know, what are the, the mental health impacts, um, not just of the climate crisis and how enormous and overwhelming this problem is, but really of inaction in the face of it. You know, what is it to be a young person growing up in this world, kind of told that people in positions of power are there to safeguard your future, only to learn that we're inheriting this crisis and no one's actually treating it like one. We saw at the start of the pandemic, a global mobilization to try and solve this issue. We haven't seen anything close to that when it comes to the climate crisis. Like, you know, we've had the technology, the solutions, the ingenuity, the money to solve this problem for decades. And yet critically, we're lacking the motivation and particularly people in historic seats of power do not want to disrupt the system that has created this crisis because it's too profitable, it's too advantageous for them on a very kind of selfish level. And so it means we're ensnared within the status quo. People out of power, students, young people, everyday citizens feel powerless, but so too do the people in positions of power. You know, they too think that the system's too broken, the problem is too enormous. A lot of people are falling into defeatism. It's too late. It's not my responsibility. So I'm just very determined to try and get people to shift that mindset and shift that thinking because we will only solve this crisis if we believe that we can, right? And Can we? Absolutely. I mean, I try to stay out of like really binary thinking because I often get asked this question of like, is it, you know, is there hope or is it too late to solve the climate crisis? And the reality is 
it is already too late for lots of people. Like over a thousand people died in the floods in Pakistan. Millions of people are being displaced. We didn't even hear about the flooding in like Bangladesh, which is the worst in over a hundred years. Worse than the normal flooding in Bangladesh. Mm, exactly. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And so we're already losing species. And, and purely from a scientific perspective, there is a certain degree of warming that is already kind of locked in, even if we were to stop emitting overnight. So we're going to see mass pain and suffering and displacement of people. So it's already too late for a lot of people. But of course, there is still so much to save. And, you know, the science tells us that we have to keep within this 1.5 degrees of warming or else we're going to trigger all of these climate tipping points. And unfortunately, as you know, once we go past those points, then you really are past the point of no return. It's very difficult for human intervention to try and reverse those systems of collapse. So that's why this moment in time is so important and why anyone with the, the resource to do so has to try and do something. How far are we from that tipping point, the one and a half degrees? Uh, <laughs> very close. You know, I'm not a scientist, so I won't try to recite the numbers. But, you know, I think a lot of people are kind of familiar with this doomsday clock, which I disagree with as a concept because I generally don't think doom and gloom really motivates people, although I'm probably being quite doom and gloom right now. No, no, I, I, th I think it's important. So I, I, I do that. Let me be very clear. So when, when I wrote Scary Smart about the, the threat of artificial intelligence, the first half of the book was the scary part. Yeah. Okay. I think the worst way we can actually ever behave is to deny the facts. Okay. Yeah. Let's put the facts on the table and understand them. And I know this is your work as well. So force of nature is, is really trying to say, we don't need denial and we don't need despair. Right? Yeah. We just need to know the facts so that we can act. Exactly. Now, now let's talk about the doomsday clock. So when I invited you over here, I actually did this deliberately. I don't know if you've noticed that big box over there. Mm -hmm. This is the amount of plastic that I recycled during my, I mean, I'm hoping they will recycle during the last seven days of my stay. So I came to this Airbnb, I did order a suitcase, so that came in that big box, but the rest is just little things, you know, like you order a, a notepad and, and it comes wrapped in unnecessary plastic, and right? And plastic is just one small part of this, but it was my attempt to actually waiting for your arrival to tell you that we have built a capitalist system yeah. that is motivated by certain parameters, and we can discuss those in details, that even someone like me who is desperately attempting not to waste, mm -hmm. it's impossible. Yeah. It's impossible. Now, I can tell you openly that I probably waste 5% of the typical person, mm -hmm. right? but it's still too much. It is still unbelievably massive as an impact on the planet. And if I didn't recycle this, if I just threw it in the normal bin, think about the impact. And I think people need to start realizing this. So let's talk about how far we are because I want everyone listening to us to understand that one more day might be a little late, that we need to start doing something now. So yeah. where are we? Absolutely. So we have about five or six years to really turn things around. So it's a very small window of time. And, and what that actually means is, you know, the original target is that we need to be on track to halving global emissions by 2030. We're obviously nowhere near that. 
And of course, what often doesn't get airtime when we when we talk about climate is, you know, biodiversity. And we're already seeing the sixth mass extinction. We're seeing major biodiversity loss, you know, up to 10,000 times faster than it would be happening naturally. And so, you know, it's becoming more and more real. I think for the climate generation, like people my age, we've if you're like me and you grew up in a bubble of you know climate privilege, climate change was something that you read about in articles. It was something that you watched in documentaries, like an inconvenient truth. Yet in November of 2019, my country went up in flames, right? Mm-hmm. Like two billion animals were incinerated in the inferno. I remember watching videos from my friends on Instagram, them standing on the roofs of their homes with hoses trying to keep the flames at bay. You know, this is this is a country of the global north, a, a privileged country, right? And it's also experiencing the climate crisis. So, you know, it's becoming more and more real, but the time is is really really dwindling. And I think the thing that frustrates me is not or that scares me, I guess, you know, isn't the science um so much as all of the false solutions, right? all of the greenwashing, all of the, you know, techno-utopian solutions that are supposedly going to solve this crisis. And I remember in our conversation, I mentioned it, like Elon Musk tweeted a little while back that um, he was pledging 100 million US dollars for the best carbon capture technology, as if trees didn't exist. And, you know, (laughs) US, US climate envoy John Kerry came out and said over half of the technologies needed to get to net zero in America have not yet been invented, right? So we we keep holding on to this idea that like robots of the future are somehow going to pull us out of this mess because it's really painful to scrutinize the part that we each play, the part that we've inherited a system that is deeply flawed, that is deeply broken, and to really analyze the ways in which we're complicit and the ways in which our lives are deeply interconnected with all of those systems. It asks us, you know, this crisis demands that we really examine our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to nature. So of course it's easier to say, oh yeah, there's going to be some carbon sequestering machine that's going to fix the problem rather than saying, actually we've inherited an economic model of growth-based capitalism, which says we can do limitless growth with finite resources. We can continue, you know, baked in a history of colonization to commodify nature, um, to exploit frontline communities, to effectively, you know, sacrifice people to, to this monster. And that's what it is. You know, like the climate crisis is not a coincidence. We're not not solving it because it's inconvenient. We're making an active choice to say there are hundreds of millions of people who we're going to allow to die because of this crisis, because we would rather hold on to the comforts of our lives today. And we don't want to ask those big questions. And so that is the piece that frustrates me. And, you know, you talked about your own plastic consumption and how difficult it is. You know, we've also been lured into this false narrative that it's up to individual actions. And I hate this so much. Like, you know, I was interviewed for something recently and they said, oh, but, you know, what what are the top 10 things that people can do in their homes? And I said, you know what, I'd much rather talk about fossil fuel subsidies in this country or, you know, the people we're voting into power or the role of big companies. But they were so obsessed with this idea that, you know, if you turn off the lights when you leave a room or you buy a reusable coffee cup, we're going to solve this issue, which we just know is a distraction tactic, right? The carbon footprint calculator was created by British Petroleum, which then rebranded to Beyond Petroleum, 
so that it could spotlight attention away from itself and shine light on the individual consumer and say, actually, no, it's up to you. It's up to how much energy you use. Let's not examine the fact that 100 companies are responsible for 71% of emissions. Like, no, that's too uncomfortable. So for me, it's like the despair comes from these narratives that are just continuing to delay action and, and lure people both into a false sense of positivity and, and some assurance that we're going to solve the problem with the same types of thinking that have created it in the first place. I find that really exhausting. Clover for Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was such a word vomit. <laughs> it's, it's so spot on. So the reason we ask you for what we can do is perhaps because we are in the same level of despair that the decision makers are not mm -hmm. going to do much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just sort of asked myself while you were talking and you so cleverly said as if trees were not invented. And I said, maybe I should just withdraw every dollar I have in the bank and sell every asset that I have and just plant trees for that. And it's quite interesting when you think about it, that the government will not do that, that $100 million by super tech entrepreneurs are pledged for a machine when $100 million can plant a billion trees. Yeah, I saw a very telling tweet today from the World Bank, and uh, it was about Bhutan and the fact that they have 71% uh, of forest coverage. And I remember, I was like, oh, that's so cool. But then the second line of the tweet was, you know, and it only contributes 2% uh, to their GDP. So how can they better take advantage of this forest, right? And in a world of capitalism, a tree doesn't have value for producing oxygen and fostering biodiversity and keeping us alive. You know, they'd rather think about how can we turn that beautiful old tree into a piece of Ikea furniture? So the disconnect is, it runs so deep. And again, as you said, like it's, it's hard to really think from a place of empowerment, what can I actually do when, unless you go and, you know, move to an island and live on a fully sustainable compound, like we're all contributing to the problem. And I think that's the part that can be dis really disabling and that also fuels a lot of these feelings of guilt in my generation. We know how we're contributing to the problem. So can I ask a very political question here? So I don't think we are all equally contributing to the problem. Africans, for example, are contributing a lot less Agreed. than, than Americans or Chinese. I mean, the Chinese per capita are contributing a lot less, but then that debate of, you know, Chinese government and American government saying, hey, but you're the problem. Uh, it doesn't really matter, honestly, how much per capita or how much per country or how much per square foot of your land or how much, per, I don't know, but your GDP it doesn't matter. What matters is someone needs to become aware that this is going to hit us. And I think the challenge, if you ask me, and I say that very openly from my corporate career, is that very few people ever that were in responsibility cared about what the next person that will take over from me has to deal with, mm. okay? It was one of the, of the things that really, really made me struggle in my career is because I cared. I sort of, it was so easy for me. And I remember vividly it was... 1999. And yeah, I'm that old. See, and, I was born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you for rubbing it in. <laughs> uh, so I, I remember vividly, at, until that time, I used to be that high flyer, you know, superstar. Every 18 months, I expected a promotion. Otherwise, I'd get really upset. And I went to my boss around 12 months in, the ultimate capitalist, and I said, look, I performed, I grew my business this much, I did this very well, I expect you to promote me within six months. And he told me at the time, he said, but you're doing so well and the sector is really not fully fixed yet. Would you please stick around for another year? And I promise you, I will promote you twice after one more year. And so I said, I'll take your word for it. And I basically continued on that sector. Best year of my life. So he came back to me a year later and said, you did so well, I'll keep my promise. And I said, would you please keep me for another year? Because I suddenly for the first time ever recognized that I need to clean my own shit. Because when you had the, con the concept of I'm going to, I'm going to run around every 18 months, you really didn't build anything sustainable. You, you just closed a deal that had a technical issue in it. And you knew that when it landed, who cares? I'm not going to be here. You know, someone else's problem. They can go and spend their time uh, trying to fix it. It's not my issue. Okay. And that one year where I had to clean my own shit was the year where I actually realized what doing proper ethical business was all about to really build something that actually is sustainable, that delivers to the customer. That is, you know, within business, it's the equivalent of ethics really. Yeah. And I think that's the problem with our politicians because our, nobody really cares what's going to happen in six years time. The person that comes in six years times can solve that problem then. Agreed. Yeah. I think that escapist, mentality permeates so many parts of our culture mm -hmm. you know i i found myself doing it recently i went to a panel on air pollution and uh, there's this really cool campaign that where you could type in your postcode and you could see the level of air pollution in your area and i typed in my postcode you know living in Whitechapel in in london and it showed that i was in the 99th percentile so the most polluted part of the uk and I remember my first instinct in reading that was, I just need to get out. I need to move to the countryside. I need to get away from the air pollution. And then I paused for a second and I thought, hey, hold on. You know, why isn't my response actually, what can I do in my local community to improve the air quality? You know, lobbying my council to plant more trees, closing off, you know, car lanes and swapping them out for bicycle paths. And I think just generally when you do have privilege of choice, it's really easy to default into that kind of escapist thinking. You see it with Elon Musk and his Mars plan, right? Let's go and try and turn a completely uninhabitable planet habitable when we've been gifted the most beautiful, biodiverse, incredible planet we could ever hope for, right? And I never got this bit. No. <laughs> like what happens to intelligence when we start to say those things? Honestly, and you know, don't look up. They captured that really well. I loved, <laughs> loved that movie. I, I posted about it on Instagram yeah. and you'll be shocked by some of the, of the comments I got. Mm. Like some people saying, oh, acting wasn't great. <laughs> what? Okay. What? You missed the yeah. point. 
we cut people <laughs> yeah exactly and it, i found it really triggering because it was super relatable particularly when um jennifer lawrence's character sat there you know on the tv show with the news anchors and she's saying no you don't understand like our planet is literally imploding and they're all kind of making fun of her and she has a bit of a meltdown i feel like that's every young activist who has like you. ever <laughs> taken a stage ever is like just banging your head against a wall but yeah that escapism i think it's it's especially true of policymakers as well you know politicians say okay what what are the promises that i can make to people to secure my ticket into power and then once you are into power you know what ethics do i need to compromise so that i can maintain my status who's working against me like it's very transactional and again it's what can i say once again that's going to keep me in for another three years another four years it's it's very very short term and of course we know that the change that is needed is short term right like we need a massive mobilization right now but it's apparently more interesting to talk about bullshit. you said shit, so i'm gonna say bullshit. <laughs> bullshit, like Brexit. no young girl you're not allowed to say that i don't live radio i'm used to censoring myself but you know like like Brexit it's like come on like there are bigger issues you know at play here so it's um yeah unfortunately the current systems of power advantage people who are self-interested and are quite self-motivated and unfortunately when you have like the rare person come along like Bernie Sanders I was a very big fan um you come along you know truly trying to change the system they're rejected you know in that case he was rejected by his own party because he was too much of a threat to their comfort and their you know stability and everything else so it's very hard to try and create change by working your way up the ladder and that's why I'm quite interested in more sneaky is not the right word but like other ways of disrupting and other ways of creating change you know i think extinction rebellion um has been incredibly successful but again the system's now reacting against it like we have the policing bill here in the uk that's increasingly making it illegal to protest to use your voice it's the greatest threat to democracy that this you know country has ever faced and they quietly pushed it in in the middle of the night right so we need to find other ways to disrupt power we can't really wait for another election round for another generation of people to take those seats we need to change the people who are in those corridors of power today and if they're not awoken to the problem wake them up clover for revolution <laughs> um, okay so have we scared you enough because i really really think uh, the issue is yeah i think we're really um in the 11th hour um so let's shift gears and talk a little bit about making everyone sad and regretful instead of scared. I feel horrible seeing you so full of life, trying to preserve our planet. I, I feel so regretful looking at my wonderful daughter, Aya, who is so brilliant, so full of life, knowing that we messed up so much. And I'm going to be very open. I messed up. It's not like this. I'm not going to blame capitalism, right? We all did. We, we all, maybe we're not smart enough to understand that this whole game is rigged, that I did not need a, another car uh, if the price to pay for that was going to be my daughter's future. And, and yesterday I watched this weird thing on 
I've been filming twice a day for quite a bit of time. So my brain by 8 p.m. completely stops. I, I just don't, don't can't think anymore. So I clicked on the first thing that Amazon re recommended to me and it was called Tomorrow's War. Horrible mo movie, don't watch it. <laughs> Horrible. But it basically talks about the idea that we're exporting our issues to the future. We're simply packaging all of our issues and simply saying, you guys deal with them in 10 years time. Yeah. Now, the, the, the beautiful part of that movie was they were sort of, they received people from the future saying, come help us, we're your sons and daughters. And I loved that image. Okay, come and fight the war with us. We will transport you to the future to fight the war with us because we're your sons and daughters. And, and that really registers with me. You know, what can I do? If someone told me, you know, if my daughter texted me from 2050 and said, Papa, I need you come and fight that war with me, I will absolutely go, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and, and in an interesting way, so why am I not going now? Like, why am I not fighting that war now instead of waiting till she sends me that text? Now, tell me your perspective as a young human on this planet. Mm -hmm. And don't be shy. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to back it up in a story time because I think it provides some context. So when I was 16... I had shipped my family from Australia to Indonesia so that I could go to a place called the Green School. I know the Green School. Yes. Um, so for your listeners, you know, wallless bamboo classrooms in the middle of the jungle. Um, green School was so unlike my Australian education and not just because of the compost toilets and the fact that we had solar panels and we, you know, grew our own food. Um, but because unlike my Australian education, it didn't ask me to pursue a convenient career. It asked me which problems I wanted to solve. So it was at the green school that I really developed my activism and in Bali did so at a grassroots level. So I could, I could see problems that were very tangible, plastic pollution, reuse cooking oil, clogging waterways, you know, communities that didn't have enough to eat. And I could actually try and develop solutions to those very immediate things. However, when I was 16, I went to COP21 in Paris. So the global climate meeting where world leaders, you know, come together to, to pledge their climate commitments. And that was the first time where I was really thinking about climate on this global scale. And I was actually brushing shoulders with people uh, in positions of true power who could make a difference on this issue. And I remember feeling so fired up and so excited and, you know, really with this kind of starry-eyed optimism, I was like, finally, we're going to solve this problem. You know, and it's in the name, COP21, like we've done 21 of these already, surely <laughs> by 21, we'll make some real progress. And the first event I showed up to was the Sustainable Innovation Forum. And it was sponsored by the likes of Coca-Cola, BMW, Shell. And I remember thinking, this is like going to a conference on lung cancer sponsored by Philip Morris. Mm. I'd never seen such unapologetic greenwashing. I'd never heard so many so-called leaders make commitments scheduled far enough into the future that they required no immediate action. And in all of my years of activism up until that point, I'd never felt so powerless. You know, I, I knew the anxiety, I knew the anger, the sadness, the grief, but I never really allowed myself like I did in that moment to think, you know, perhaps this problem is too big and perhaps the system is too broken. 
But the thing that really struck me in that moment was that looking into the eyes of the people around me, you know, looking at the cautious corporate leaders and the calculating policymakers and my peers, you know, my students, my teachers, I remember seeing that same feeling of powerlessness reflected in their eyes too. And when I went back to the green school, feeling still disillusioned, I had this real light bulb moment. I was sat in, you know, one of my environmental studies classes and my teacher introduced me to this word, ecophobia. It was coined by an environmental educator, David Sabell, in 1996, so three years before I was born. And he defined it as the feeling of powerlessness in the face of environmental catastrophe. Mm. And this was an absolute catalytic moment for me because I realized that the threat even greater than the climate crisis, the real threat, is how powerless we feel in the face of it. And I became obsessed with understanding the role of our psychology and our mindset when it comes to the climate crisis. Because I was like, unless we figure this piece of it out, we're not going to be able to do any of the other stuff. And in that research and in, you know, conversations, what became clear is that, you know, as a species, (laughs) we're um, really bad at responding to threats that we perceive as, you know, long-term and distant and super complex, right? Um, I'm sure you've heard that example of the frog in the pot of water, but it's this idea that if a tiger leaps at you from the bush, you're wired for fight or flight. If someone swerves to you, you know, on a scooter on the sidewalk, like you're wired to respond. But when it comes to climate change, we're the frog in the pot of slowly warming water, right? And we don't jump out until it's boiling. Literally. Literally. And so you know, we're not geared for one to respond to this. And this was a really helpful realization because I think coming out of COP, it was super easy to resign myself to this idea that people were inherently bad and greedy and to think, you know, the people in power just don't care. Mm -hmm. And I still feel that way about certain people like the, you know, business leaders within big oil and gas companies like Exxon who chose to hide the climate science, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Um, but for the most of us and for most people in business today, that's not that's not the fact. You know, they think about their kids and they really, really care about this issue. They don't want to be complicit. They want to know what to do. Um, but again, it feels so large and it feels so overwhelming that they don't even know where to start. And so that manifests in denial oftentimes in, you know, whether it's the techno utopianism or, you know, it's not up to me. We invent all manner of stories to convince ourselves that it's not our responsibility. Um, And for a lot of young people like myself who are inheriting this crisis, that powerlessness can really manifest as as a deep despair. And I think, you know, I've spoken to 11 and 12 year old girls in the classroom who have told me that they've already decided they don't want to have children because they don't want to bring them into a world defined by climate collapse. You know, I've spoken to 16 year olds who suffer, sincerely suffer suicidal ideation. Um, I've heard about suicide packs because of the climate crisis. You know, children wanting to end their own lives because they can't bear the thought of, of what's happening. And So there's this mental health epidemic that we're not really talking about. And what's interesting in all of the research we've done at Force of Nature, you know, understanding eco-anxiety, understanding youth mental health, those feelings don't stem from the enormity. They stem from inaction in the face of them. So it's effectively being gaslit by the culture and by people in power because we have access to global information. We can see the science for ourselves. We can see how terrifying this is. And yet we look to the people who we've been told to trust, 
you know, we go to the polls and, and we have to choose between a climate change denier and a seasoned procrastinator, right? <laughs> We've grown up having to understand greenwash because we're constantly being sold stuff because companies see conscious, sustainable consumers um, as an opportunity to make, you know, a sustainability premium, to make more money. So young people feel so disillusioned. And we did some research recently with 10,000 young people in 10 countries. And, and that showed that 56% of young people believe that humanity is doomed. And there were, uh, there were other stats that came out of that as well around eco-anxiety. But what was super interesting is that those feelings of despair were highest among youth populations already experiencing climate change. So in countries like the Philippines, um, these are, or the Maldives, you know, these are communities that really feel like their cultures have been sacrificed because people in places like the global north, people with privilege have decided, you know, actually it, it's not worth our time or energy to, to really try and solve this problem, to turn it around. So a lot of young people feel uh, very despairing. But the one thing that I will say is that I feel so privileged to be part of a generation that is so aware of the issues. And I've done a lot of work to try and destigmatize eco-anxiety because it's a rational response right? Often when I talk about eco-anxiety, the default can be, well, how do we fix young people? How do we make them feel better? And it's like, no, 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 young people are the ones who are awake here, right? The problem isn't that they experience <laughs> eco-anxiety, it's that more people in power do not, right? And Yeah, yeah we want to make more people anxious. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, I know it's kind of at odds with your mission, you know, around no, having... No, no, it's, uh, I, I, I said openly, we need to get people to understand the facts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's it. It's like, That anxiety is the internal alarm bell. It's the cave person within you who says, you know, something's really wrong. We need to act, right? But if you just have that anxiety, if you don't have an outlet, if you don't have a place to channel it, then that's when it can tip into the powerlessness, either the despair, the defeatism, it's too lateism, or the denial, which is just pulling the blanket over our eyes. And neither works, right? So what, what you're trying to say is probably very similar to what I'm trying to say. Don't deny it. Mm -hmm. Don't panic, just sit down and let's do something about it. Yeah, create space for the feelings. And I've always felt really big emotions. Like growing up, my dad used to say that I was too sensitive. This is the part of the podcast I won't send him. <laughs> But, you know, I remember thinking that that was a weakness. And I remember thinking there was something wrong with me because I cared a lot about lots of different things. And I've since learned over the years that it's such a gift to feel things deeply. So much. We need to create space for those emotions, you know, and in a culture through kind of toxic positivity that tells us we can buy our way to happiness, that we can just try and fill the void or we can scroll our way out of anxiety. Like we need to get people comfortable with sitting in the pain and, and looking full in the face of what we've done to our planet. Because I think when we travel down into that pain and when we really let it touch our hearts, that is what gives us courage. Like that's what gives us the determination. The That's why I declared myself an, an activist at the dinner table at 11. It's because I felt heartbroken, right? And I thought it would be a waste of time for me to do anything else. So let me throw my full life force behind trying to solve these issues. Let me interrupt this podcast for a minute to tell you about my latest initiative, unstressable.com. Unstressable is a members community based on my book with my co-author Alice Law, which will come out in 2023. 
members of Unstressable get a library of training materials, daily tools to manage their stress, a free monthly webinar where you can ask your questions, guest expert talks about relevant topics, and the best of all, a members community where you can talk to other like-minded people to learn tips and tricks about how to manage your stress better. Being one of my beloved listeners on Slowmo, the first 50 that will sign up for unstressable.com this week will get a two-month free membership. Use the code I love Slowmo, S-L-O, not S-L-O-W, when you sign up to get your free gift. Remember, this gift is only for the first 50 who sign up. So do it fast. Go to unstressable.com, join our community, and learn how to lead a stress-free life. I cannot wait to see you there, because living stressed is not living. So, so first of all, thank you so much for not just responding to my question by saying, yeah, you messed up, <laughs> <laughs> even though I still feel quite regretful. But so this is slow-mo. First of all, you're talking too fast. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and and secondly, we, we're, you know, this is actually normally an opportunity for us. So this whole podcast is, as I call it, a quest for wisdom, an opportunity to reflect and think about topics that we rarely give the time to. Mm-hmm. Now, here is a topic <laughs> that we should <laughs> give the time to. Do you have another eight hours? Or <laughs> so, so what is the way out? Hmm. The first thing I would say is that we need to reconnect with ourselves, acknowledging that being an individual is an illusion, right? Like we are all part of this tapestry of life no matter how much we might try to convince ourselves that we're above it or better than it we've inherited this centuries-long campaign you know through religion and and a very pigeonholed view of science that we're somehow separate from nature that we don't need it and of course we need it and we need one another you know it's it's why I also get frustrated when we talk about mental health that we pretend that we exist in isolation, these little silos. Like, you know, my mental health is, I have agency, of course, but it is an expression of the culture of I, I've inherited. It, it's an expression of the community that I live in. It's hard not to feel sad and anxious living in a place like London, which kind of switches off your humanity. I remember growing up in Australia, I, I never encountered like a rough sleeper. I grew up in a town of 6,000 people. And so I knew everyone and I knew my neighborhood, I knew my community. And then coming to London, I remember the first time I saw someone you know, sleeping on a street corner, feeling that heartbreak and feeling that sadness and you know, striking up a conversation with them. And then the second time it just, you know, it became a little bit more difficult and, and suddenly you're seeing so many people sleeping on street corners, you're seeing so many issues, you're, every time you go to the supermarket, trying to buy stuff that isn't wrapped in plastic, going through the checkout, not interacting with another human being, it's like we live in these societies that make it really difficult to connect with people yeah. and that reinforce this idea that we're uncaring. It's such a myth, like humans succeeded as a species because we're inherently social and because we can work together and collaborate and communicate. So for me, the the way out is in, I love that quote, but it's true. It's like, we have to 
understand how we've severed ourselves from community from nature we need to create space within ourselves to sit in the grief and the pain of that because there's there's a lot of pain and it, it needs time to kind of process and then we can actually process that by connecting with other people it's one of the beautiful things about force of nature it's actually been a very selfish project because you know I've basically just built this community of young people who care just as deeply as I do and suddenly I no longer feel alone in that heartbreak I've met people from every country of the world who you know experience these feelings that keep them up at night but we validate one another in those emotions and we say hey let's actually do something productive with these feelings let's channel that anxiety into action and so once you've created the space um, you can begin to to listen to that kind of inner compass um, that tells you do you know what I I don't want to be someone who sits on the sidelines I want to be someone who does something you know and if if you're a fan of visualizations like go into the future and think of yourself as an old person and ask you know what was that problem that I wrapped my hands around like you know was I someone who chose to be apathetic or was I someone who left my fingerprints on the future And, and I want to be one of those people and I meet a lot of young people who today feel you know, kind of resentful of having, in the same way you talked about feeling guilty, like there are a lot of young people who feel resentful of having inherited this world. And I've touched on those emotions at times, but if anything, I feel so grateful, like so enormously grateful to be alive in a time where I can impact so much. And when we are at this critical tipping point, like anyone listening to this, you are alive right now. You have so much potential to shape the world around you. Like this is the greatest threat we've ever faced. And it's also the most tremendous invitation any of us could ever receive to be custodians of a future by our own design, to create a world that we want to live in. And that for me is such a beautiful gift. And and that is what motivates me. So the short answer (laughs) to your question is look inside of yourself, understand what triggers that fire in your belly, And then don't do yourself the disservice of ignoring those feelings, but really think, how can I channel them into action? What are the skills that I have? What are the skills that I want to develop to take action on the issue that I care about? And then how do I find others? Because there are so many of us who care about the same thing so that we can do this in collective action. So I, I, I want to dive deep into this. So I wrote, I wrote extensively in that little voice in your head about what is known as hyper-normalization of reality. Mm-hmm. And you, you just covered it so beautifully. The truth is the simulation that we've created of life is not life at all, mm-hmm. right? The, 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 that illusion of I'm an individual, I'm not connected to others. The illusion of you can deal with a cashier or a barista without acknowledging their humanity. Mm-hmm. The illusion of this is life in any way and that I'm an individual and I'm separated from all of the others. That illusion is wrong. That illusion is truly, truly needs to be rejected. The news that we listen to, which gives us slivers of reality and ignores a lot of reality, like you rightly said, talks about the heat wave and its impact on swimming pools, but not the heat wave and its impact on global, uh, uh, you know, uh, climate crisis. All of those 
eliminations, all of our belief in politics. I just surprisingly had lunch with a friend today where we, she's a big believer in reforming politics in a way where politics work. When I am a big believer that there is no hope, you can't go to the thief and say, can you please recover my goods for me? And, and I don't mean that governments are thieves, but the reality is that a politician is driven by a very different objective. And I always say that one of the, the Bibles of the modern world is to read free economics. Free economics explains to you that if the politician is motivated by getting, uh, you know, elected, then all of their actions will justify that. All of their actions will go in that direction. Mm. So I think you're absolutely spot on. The very first step is stop believing the illusion, the hyper-normalization of reality. Start to see the reality that is surrounding you. And when you see it, now you can take proper action. Your action here is actually quite interesting. It's uh, much wiser than my normal answers because my normal answers would be, okay, cut this, do that, carry this, drop that, you know, very, very engineered. But you're saying, be your own activist. Mm. Find your own purpose, your own cause. Yeah. Build your own story. Just don't sit on your bum. Yeah. I think that's what frustrates me about the fixation on individual action from the perspective of lifestyle changes, right? I think it's really insulting to what we're capable of doing because sure, all of us can, you know, live in a more sustainable way, but part of the reason we can feel really overwhelmed is when we try to spread ourselves thin across all of the issues. So you try to recycle and you try to change your energy provider and you no longer buy fast fashion and you adopt a plant-based diet. And you, again, all these things are important, but actually I think impact really comes from, from focus, from saying, you know, this is the, the issue that ignites that fire in my belly. And, you know, the climate crisis is this symptom of really interconnected problems from the clothes that I wear to the food in my fridge to, you know, how I got around to this podcast studio today. How did you come around to this podcast studio? <laughs> On the train. <laughs> I was so proud of you. I mean, for people, I don't understand London very well. So I booked an Airbnb that is after the edge of London, you go a very long way. Mm. So and I will say I was tempted to get an Uber, but I thought, <laughs> no, that would be a bit too hypocritical for, that, for this conversation. <laughs> but yeah, so ask yourself what that big problem is. And if that doesn't come to you immediately, if that thought doesn't pop into your head of, oh, do you know what? I'm really passionate about prison reform or girls' education or, you know, transforming the food system, then that's an invitation to create that space to really just sit with yourself, to learn more, um, to travel into the difficult feelings and, and have a conversation with yourself because oftentimes in a very fast-paced world that prioritizes hyper-productivity, we don't actually create space and it can feel uncomfortable, right? Like sometimes I try to sit with myself and I'm just itching to pick up my phone so that I can scroll. But if I can resist that temptation and just sit in silence for contemplation, then all of that wisdom kind of bubbles up to the surface and, and all of those truths. And again, we owe it to ourselves to, to listen, you know, because mm. we all know that something's really wrong. Mm. So we have to create space to, to listen. And I think this is also where intergenerational conversations can be really powerful no 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 we, we're hopeless <laughs> honestly <laughs> well i think listening to young people is really valuable oh you mean me <laughs> <laughs> yes but really young people like children 
Children have so much wisdom because they haven't been around long enough for society to kind of clip the wings of their imaginations. Like mm. they see the world in a really pure way. And do you know what? I think it's Greta Thunberg, right? She galvanized this movement of young people globally. And part of that she attributes to her Asperger's because she says, you know, I'm less concerned with social nicety. I can just say yeah. things in black and white. And I think that moral absolutism of young people being able to say, actually, let's scrap the conversation about what's financially viable or what incremental solution is going to fix this. Let's just talk about whether it's right or wrong. If we can reground in those ethics, if we can simplify this equation, then I think we can motivate people much more effectively. So I love having conversations with, you know, my six-year-old cousin because she just, when I'm getting lost in all my own complexity and unnecessary confusion, she can just give me really simple truths. Mm. My son Ali was that example, basically telling me the truth as it is in eight words every time. It's interesting that I'm 100% with you, by the way, I think, and I, I sit and listen and smile, you know, when I get engaged in those conversations, uh, when people say, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And it's tiny changes. Of course, by the way, I respect incremental changes. I respect the fact that you say it's hypocritical if I'm trying to be an activist for the environment, but I don't take the train. I think every single one of us should do every single possible thing. Like don't walk into the supermarket and carelessly pick the, the packaged fruits. Try to pick the unpackaged one. Take it lightly to pick up something made of plastic. Don't travel around in cars if you can't walk, right? All of these little things, even if they don't fix the big problem, at least they fix your conscious, that you're not contributing to the problem. And yet I will absolutely say the problem is systemic. Systemic failure is why we are where we are when it comes to artificial intelligence, when it comes to uh, climate change, when it comes to the massive gap of income, when it comes to so many, many issues. And I think the idea of being an activist in your own topic, just find one and become an activist at it, is on top of what you can do as an individual, cultivates, you know, collects other beings around you so that together you can make a slight, slightly bigger difference. Yeah, exactly. And I think, as you said, like individual actions can be really good from a values perspective. Like when I watch those documentaries, my first action as a self-proclaimed activist was to become a vegetarian, which horrified my father who is both French and also a chef. So I was <laughs> basically rejecting his whole culture and everything. Yeah, that it's he... like, you, I don't like you anymore. I don't like you. Exactly. So when he cooked this, you know, beautiful roast dinner and I sat down and said, actually I'd prefer some vegetables, please. Um, that was very confronting, but you know, things like that, those actions, you know, I'm still vegetarian to this day can be really, really powerful. But as you said, we also can't allow fear of inconsistency or hypocrisy to prevent us from engaging. And unfortunately, that's one of the things that I kind of see, particularly in the context of social media activism today, is that there's a lot of gatekeeping according to how pure of an activist you are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, the most important prerequisite is that you care. Like, mm. I don't care actually if you fly on planes or you use plastic or you eat meat. Like, you know, I do lots of things that I would prefer not to, but that I choose to because they're more convenient and it allows me to focus on the big picture stuff. Um, 
But I think we have to be really careful of that because, you know, there are lots of people I speak to who are really fearful of engaging. And and that also translates to people within companies, people within business who say, you know, I, I really care about this stuff, but I'm really worried about what people will say of me if I, you know, ex person who runs this company, take a stand because I will be called a hypocrite. You know, I will be mm. exposed for my inconsistency. Um, so we really need to lean into the inconsistency and create more space for one another to be human, acknowledging that, you know, wherever we sit within the system, we've all inherited it, right? Mm. And so we're all contributing to it in some way. And again, some people have a lot more privilege and influence and power to change that system in the places they are right now. But we have to move from, yeah, individual actions, great on a spiritual values basis, Mm. but we can't lose sight of the big institutional changes that must happen. Mm. So I need I need your answer in one uh, short sentence for the next uh, question. So oh gosh, uh, I'm not good at <laughs> after I wrote Scary Smart and I spoke about the uh, idea of artificial intelligence. I actually doubled. I write all the time, so I I wrote a few chapters on a book that I call Sentient Technologies. And sentient technologies are basically a set of technologies that are um, that we kickstart, but we don't manage beyond the point they're out of the lamp, if you want, out of the bottle, okay? And the three basically for me were artificial intelligence, gene editing, where once you've edited a gene and left it in the wild, like, you know, editing our genes when you're vaccinated, for example, and now we're in the wild, you know, our knowledge of that field, we may be you know, lucky and nothing goes wrong. But, you know, if you edit the gene of a rat and make it a little different in one way and then leave it in the wild, that continues to, it's sentient in a way, it has a mind of its own. And of course, the third is the climate spiral. So as you rightly said, you know, changes trigger more changes and where the doom's clock day is ticking, basically. Now, I did, however, conclude my view of artificial intelligence with what I called the fourth inevitable, that we will end up in a utopia, that we will end up finding a path uh, where AI itself, when it's intelligent enough, is going to sort of say, oh, mommy and daddy are so stupid, let me sort sort this out for them. They, they will recognize that there is no point in being against humans because like the smarter ones of us recognize that biodiversity is good for the planet, I think AI will, will think that biodiversity by keeping humans is also a good idea, right? Your view on climate change, what is inevitable? Are we going to fix it? Are you optimistic or are we gonna miss that bandwagon and uh <laughs> oh no oh and turn it into a sound by as well <laughs> i'm hopeful but i no longer find hope where i used to am i allowed to elaborate <laughs> yes you are absolutely requested to elaborate okay that was my simple sentence i got <laughs> one in there i think i used to look to the institutions themselves, to policymakers, to business leaders, to, you know, people in power to change this. And if the past few years have taught me anything, people power is the only thing that's going to change this. Mm. Movements like Extinction Rebellion, people choosing to band together, you know, widespread disruption, that's the only thing that's actually going to move the needle. You know, the whole theory of change behind Extinction Rebellion is to stop the economy, because they recognize that, you know, if they 
shut down Oxford Circus, the middle of the capital of, you know, England, people are actually going to take pause and people in power are going to take pause. So I guess I don't, I don't look for hope in those places. I look for hope in the people who have been historically excluded from the people who haven't had a platform. You know, I look to hope for people who have already been living through the impacts of climate change for years. I look to indigenous communities who model so much of what it means to live in relationship with nature. I look to young people who feel despair, but also have a lot of courage to create a world by our own design. So I'm hopeful And yet I'm also not naive that the next few decades are by any means going to be easy. You know, we're currently on track to see a billion climate migrants by 2050. Coral reefs are going to disappear in my lifetime. There's certain things that are absolutely horrifying that just feel like inevitable truths right now if you choose to look at the science objectively. And yet I believe in the fundamental good of people. And I think people we have it within us to work together to solve this crisis if enough of us can be galvanized to take action then I think we can create a radically different world but that means kind of tipping upside down huge systems that feel completely impenetrable Mm. like global capitalism and thinking about that can be a bit scary but we have no other choice you know it's do or die (laughs) yeah I think AI will do that for us with universal basic income, if you think about it. Can I ask you a question? And we don't have to answer it if you don't want to. I I feel that one of the most successful movements of our modern times has been the LGBTQ movement, where true change happened. Those who were not informed became informed and changed their mind, if you want. And those who are still stubborn are told to stay quiet because this is the right way to go, mm-hmm. okay? Is there anything that we can learn from this? Because it really is from the grassroots. It, it really came from the people. And it is, in my view, probably the biggest success of your generation. Because whether you're queer or not, whether your choice is to be whatever it is that you want, hmm, I think your entire generation supports LGBTQ. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I look at LGBT, I look at the civil rights movement, I look at the suffragettes. These are all people-powered movements. And I think something that we can forget, you know, I went to Pride this year and it's a beautiful celebration and it's, you know, colorful and vibrant. But we can forget that its origins are the the Stonewall riots, right? There there were people who sacrificed their lives Mm. because, again, they knew that this was do or die. This was about their existence. Do or die. Yeah. And so I think that is what we can learn is that this movement is, we can draw inspiration, but that is what it's going to take, right? Mm. We're not going to change the system by asking nicely. We're not going to change the system by asking people in power to disrupt themselves or challenge the very things and ideals that keep them in those seats of power. We need to, you know, force change. And that can be a beautiful, inspiring thing, but I think it inevitably also has to be a pretty painful thing. So I think it's amazing that, you know, as a generation, we're so open-minded that we're willing to say, 
you know, all for open conversation and debate and divergence of ideas, but there are some things that are just non-negotiables, like people's right to love who they choose. And so I think with that attitude, we need to really be uncompromising in asking for the world that we want to create and not just asking for it, but being active players in making that world happen. Yeah, and we need to make as much noise, I think. Yeah. Okay, I'll uh, end on a lighter (laughs) side. (laughs) How's your party life like? <laughs> I mean, most, <laughs> most 23-year-olds are not concerned as much. Uh, I mean, they do think about it and they do feel eco-anxiety, but then they still go to the to the party on Friday yeah, night and yeah. drink and do stupid <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> oh, good question. I think I was reflecting this to my boyfriend the other day. I was like, I, I think it occurred to me how much responsibility I carry on my shoulders and, you know, not just the personal responsibility I feel to take action on this crisis, but force of nature, my organization is now a 12 person team and it's no Google, but it's keeping 12 people employed and keeping money through the door and, you know, running our programs and trying to create a real impact. It's a huge amount of responsibility. And I think for a long time, I felt like my activism had to come from a place of self-sacrifice. Like I thought it was quite noble to think that in some hypothetical world, if someone asked me to sacrifice my life in the name of like a forest, I thought, you know, it's really noble that I would say yes in a heartbeat. Like that's how in service I feel to this like mission. But I've realized that that self-sacrifice is kind of a product of the very system that I'm trying to change. And it's a system that kind of convinces me that I don't have a right to joy and happiness. And, you know, I I spent some time at a a monastery, a Buddhist monastery in France called Plum Village. And uh, the monastics there are beautiful people. And I remember going for the first time and thinking, oh gosh, they're going to be really somber and really serious. And meeting them, they're meeting them, exactly. They're the most like joyous, kind, happy, lighthearted people. Funny, joking, playing. Exactly, Exactly. and it's, you know, honestly. You met his holiness. (laughs) Like he's the ultimate playful child out there in the world. Exactly, I think he stuck his tongue out at me at one point. Like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) like, and it's what I so admire about your work is that if we want to create a better, brighter future, we have to find that world in the one that exists today and if it doesn't exist we need to create it and we need to inhabit it and so i i want to interrupt you yeah. what was your favorite moment with his holiness probably i don't know if there was a single moment it was just his presence yeah it's there's like an the, incredible the, the presence joy there. and i think i asked him quite a serious question about like legacy and responsibility and something like this and he said something really playful Mm. and I was like wow (laughs) I don't know you expect someone like that to have gravitas because they're very serious and wise but the wisdom you know the wisdom I saw in him is the same wisdom that I feel when I talk to my six-year-old cousin it's like this this child like you know joy you know and that that connection and And so I guess that was, that's really been my takeaway the past few years is that like, I can't sacrifice myself. I can't do this from a place purely of despair and sadness. And I have those days, but I really need to embody the world that I want to create. And that world is joyful and loving. And it's one where 
I go to dance classes on weekend and I dog sit for my friends and I'm currently lobbying my boyfriend to adopt a dog because I'm, you know, such a dog lover. It's ridiculous, you know, and to have tea and that's my retirement plan is I want to start a tea salon, you know, a, a place for ah, people to... Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to start a cafe, trust me. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Oh, damn. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the plan is there, but the retirement doesn't come. Yeah, the retirement, probably not. Particularly yeah. within the timescales of climate change, maybe not super likely. <laughs> not soon, yeah. Um, but yeah, my, my party life, all to say, is a lot better now than it was a few years ago. And that's because I'm determined to, to find joy and to enjoy life very wise very wise my favorite moment with his holiness was as i bought a white shirt and a jacket to go and meet him and uh, for some reason the universe didn't agree with that either i overate or i washed the <laughs> shirt or something but the shirt was actually like you know the buttons were almost bursting when i wore it for the first time uh, i just took it out and it was that way so i had to wear a video game t-shirt <laughs> It was the only clean thing I had, which had a funny cartoon on it. And so we walk in there and everyone is so serious. And he just walks to me across the crowd and he goes, he puts his, uh, his finger on my t-shirt and he says, you're the funny one. Come sit next to me. Oh, man. <laughs> and, and, so and, he, and he holds my hand and literally <laughs> sets me next to him for an hour and a half while people come and go. And he's just the sweetest, kindest soul ever. Oh, that's amazing. Really is. Uh, very wise to think about the fact that when we're playful, we can just stay the long course. Yeah. When we're joyful, we can make the change without force but rather with attractiveness i think yeah it has to be sustainable you know like i love this quote you can't pour from an empty cup and external sustainability has to start with inner sustainability and there are so many activists i see who burn themselves out because they they sacrifice themselves at the shrine of this cause without thinking how do we actually invite in the people, the emotions, the activism that means that I can continue doing this in 30, 40 years time, because that's the reality. It's not just about the next five years. It's, it's the fight of our lives, right? So if I'm still doing this with when I'm 90, I better <laughs> figure out the equation to make it fun and to make it joyous and all of those things, you know, and it, it is a privilege and it is a gift. And we have to remind ourselves of that too. So if I ask you the very last question, I ask most of my guests, uh, so joyous and fun, what happiness, what's your biggest secret? <laughs> oh gosh. Oh, my biggest secret hmm, is probably just how inconsistent I am as an <laughs> activist. I've started exposing myself a bit on social media recently, but I, uh, I recently wrote about how I was hiding in the fridge of my kitchen with all the lights turned off so that my boyfriend wouldn't walk in on my secret affair, which was the salmon sushi that I was practically inhaling. Um, so that is a vignette, you know, between that and flying on planes and occasionally catching Ubers because I can't bear the thought of sitting next to a sweaty stranger on the bus. There are lots of ways that I'm not perfect as an activist. Um, so I guess that's my biggest secret, which I'm trying to make less of a secret so that other people feel empowered to take action no matter how inconsistent they might feel clover for global reader uh, i will follow i uh, i really really believe in what you're trying to do i believe in the diversity of the impact that you're trying to achieve and i am old 
and I'm supposed to like be smart or whatever, but I would follow, I would follow. I think we have just presented our most urgent global issue, I think today, and in, in an interesting way, don't just switch off the podcast and go on with your life. Maybe take a few minutes to reflect and think about what that means to all of us so that she can grow up to be 90 and we can still have a world that is inhabitable by then. Clover, thank you so much for joining me. This has been uh, everything I expected it to be. You're wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and uh, for all of you, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. I think... Uh, I typically try to bring to you here in slow-mo solved problems, experiences of people that have already found the answer so that you can reflect and see the analogies to your own life. Uh, but I think this is probably one of the challenges that unify us, unite us as humanity in a way that we have never had to uh, before. And I think in that itself is a beautiful gift because if we can find a way to be unified, to be united, then I think we've actually reached the core of who we are as humans. And I think once we've done, perhaps nature will be less angry with us. With that, I wish for you to find your passion, find your activist spirit, and meanwhile, please do what it takes to play your little role to protect whatever little we have left. Yeah, while you're at it, uh, please uh, share this with people that you think will love it. Tell them about what we're trying to do here and tell them about uh, Clover's work and maybe ask them to reach out and help. Maybe reach out to her and help yourself. And uh, yeah. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to spend so many wonderful hours with so many wonderful people to talk about topics that matter, to slow down, even if they speak so fast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.